so this week we are ending the class with uh, talking about the, uh, I, I would say the doctrine of glorification. It's really, uh, and we'll get into this, glorification is really a subset of a theology of, of last things. So eschatology is the theology of last things. And so um, one of the reasons why we chose to make this week the last week is because up until this point, we've been talking about um, what Christ has done in justification, who God is, what Christ has done, and what Christ is doing. So we, we talked about that in sanctification, and now we're ending the whole thing with what Christ is going to do. So this week really is <clears throat> the the only week where the main focus is a lot of things uh, that are yet to do. And so I remember when I was, uh, I went to Moody for my undergrad, and yeah, so for my undergrad, um, in our theology two class, I remember the the way that our professor laid the class out was the second to the last week was on the doctrine of hell. And so it was four full hours talking about hell. And it was like the most depressing four hours you, you would get in Bible school, you know. But the reason why he did that was because the last week of our theology class, <clears throat> we were talking about uh, the doctrine of heaven. And so it was really this kind of like one, two punch where, uh, where we had to really grapple with, uh, this is an understatement, but really grapple with the, the sourness of hell to really understand the sweetness of heaven. And so we're not quite doing that in this class. We haven't gone through hell, uh, particularly, but, um, but part of the reason my goal, hopefully at the end of this session in particular is that, uh, is that we would walk out, um, from this, this class session and this class as a whole with a sense of longing and anticipation that our hearts would be stirred, uh, in anticipation for what our, what our hope is, where we are moving toward. And so we're going to be looking at a lot of scripture. Um, I've put them in, uh, in a, in a keynote here that I'll share with you. So you don't need to be flipping, you know, all over the place. You'll have the scripture right in front of you, but we're going to look at a lot of scripture this morning, uh, and, and look to the word of God to be that divine spoon to stir our hearts. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so last, uh, so two weeks ago, um, we talked about, uh, we ended with the class talking about how Jesus redeemed us from the penalty of sin. And so that was justification. Last week, we talked about Jesus has redeemed us from the power of sin. That's sanctification. And now this morning, we're ending the whole class uh, in anticipation where one day we'll be freed from the presence of sin, and that's glorification. So uh, so penalty, power, and presence, those are kind of the three Ps. Another way to put it, um, I, I'm, just to like give some good handles, is that uh, justification, when we're talking about justification, we're talking about the beginning of salvation. <clears throat> when we're talking about sanctification, we're talking about the continuation of salvation. And when we talk about glorification, we're talking about the completion of salvation. So the beginning of salvation, the continuation of salvation, and the completion of salvation. And this is what, this is that, um, going back several weeks now, that, that like golden chain of salvation that we see in Romans 8. Um, and here, let me, let me share my screen here with you. Hopefully this will work better than it has in weeks past. So I'm just going to leave this up because we'll have a lot of scripture coming at us. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, this is the Romans 8, 
um, 28 through 30. Uh, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the uh, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And here's this golden chain here. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. <clears throat> and so this is the culmination of the foreknowledge of God, the calling of God, the justification of God, and now the glorification of the saints. And so as we think of, as we think about the completion of our salvation, we want to we want to consider two aspects of this completion of salvation, and those two things are perseverance and glorification itself. And so, the two questions we're going to answer this morning are first, who will be glorified, and then what is glorification? So, who who are the people that can have the anticipate the anticipation and the hope of glorification? And what is the glorification of the saints? So who will be glorified and what is glorification? And quite simply, who will be glorified? Uh, the answer to that is those who persevere in the faith. And this is where perseverance, and if, if you remember <clears throat> all the way back in, the, in our Hebrews series, perseverance of the saints, and this isn't just Hebrews, this is, this is honestly throughout the New Testament, what the New Testament writers time and time again are, are speaking to, in the, to the people that they're writing to, uh, are urging them in various ways to persevere in the faith. Perseverance is a distinctive mark. It's a necessary mark of genuine faith. And so those who will be glorified are those who persevere in the faith. And um, a, a definition here uh, that I think is helpful is uh, it's a variation from the New, New International Commentary in the New Testament uh, from, the, from the epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, it says, God's people has always consisted of those who hear, embrace, and persevere in their faith, enabled and empowered by the work of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Here, here's why this is important. Um, so often what I think happens is that when we think of uh, salvation, we think of it in, only in terms of its beginning. And so here, here's what I mean. I, I grew up in a, in a large Southern Baptist church where there was a tremendous amount of emphasis put on praying the prayer of salvation like getting people to the point where they pray a prayer. And I, I remember we would have these big like evangelistic events. Like if, if, if it was in the fifties, you would probably call them crusades. Like we had like big dramas come in. We had the power team. I don't know if anyone is steeped in by, you know, church culture enough to remember those guys, the super strong guys did these feats of strength. And then at the end they'd give this like gospel presentation and, and call a bunch of people up to the front. It was it was very altar call heavy, very make like moment of decision, pray a prayer, write the date in the front of your Bible. And and at these events, like no joke, um, I had this etched in my memory. I was like six or seven years old, where they they had these like golden tickets. It was like a Willy Wonka thing. It was crazy. There's like these golden sheets of paper that when someone prayed the prayer of salvation, they would write their name on the piece of paper and they'd stick it up on the wall. There were these like two huge walls right next to the stage. Um, 
And so by the end of these evangelistic events, you would have these walls just full of golden papers. And it'd be like, wow, look at, look at all the people who put their faith in Christ and all this stuff. Such an emphasis on like, like if you prayed a particular prayer, your name got on a sheet and put on the wall. Fast forward 10 years later, uh, it was probably longer than that. I mean, I was super young. So 15 years later, maybe, uh, I was, I was then on staff at that same church and the question was being asked where in the world are all those people whose names were stuck up on those on that wall a decade and a half ago like where in the world are they and what what happens here i think at least for me if you grow up in a kind of culture that puts such an emphasis on the beginning of faith you can forget the necessity of perseverance in the faith in the aspect of finishing the race because the reality is my neighbor growing up was one of those people who went to the front prayed the prayer met the big strong guy john jacobs and wrote his name on a piece his name was on one of those pieces of paper on the wall i can I'm not God, but there has been no mark of saving faith in, in my neighbor's life, like my childhood neighbor's life growing up. None, no fruit, no faith, no evidence of any working of the Holy Spirit in his life. Now, again, I can't like say definitively like, oh, of course not. But what I'm saying is like, I am not assured and he shouldn't be assured in the validity of his salvation simply because he has, he could point to a date. I don't, I don't even think he could tell you that date, but because he could point to a date where, where you would say his faith maybe began. The reality is that the people of God has always consisted of those who hear embrace, which that, and that embracing, there is a moment I think where you like embrace the gospel, right. Um, and persevere in their faith, enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so what the scriptures teach is that those who are genuine believers, whose profession of faith is genuine, that those who have genuine faith will persevere in that faith to the end. And so this is the doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. Um, if you're if you're big into the Calvinism, Arminianism thing, this is the P in tulip, perseverance of the saints. I think a better way to say it, honestly, would be the preservation of the saints. And so it's not just this, like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Jesus saved me. And now it's up to me to persevere. It's like, no, God, by the power of the Holy spirit in you <clears throat> preserves uh, genuine believers to the end. So we don't have um, a lot of time necessarily to get in into particularly the, um, this perseverance aspect real deep. Uh, if you want to dive a little bit deeper in it, um, on the Candeo equipping podcast, there's a, there's a whole week devoted, uh, to can a Christian lose their salvation? That's back in the issues in Hebrews class. Uh, Mark Jackson taught that session. Um, there's also the message from the Hebrew series, uh, Sunday morning message from Hebrew six called the root and its fruit. And Cody walks through that, um, Hebrews end of five, beginning of six, like walking through uh, what Hebrews tells us about um, about faith and perseverance. And then there's also a uh, um, like your view of the perseverance of the saints will be shaped by your view of the doctrine of election. And so we don't have time to get into election right now. But uh, if you want to kind of uh, dive a little bit deeper into that, um, I gave a message of salt in uh, in the fall. I think it was the fall uh 
on Ephesians 1, 3, uh, 3 through 14. And then a couple of weeks later, Stephen and I did an after salt on uh, predestination. So there's two podcasts on the Salt Cedar Falls um, podcast there, uh, the Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 message, and then a couple weeks later, the after salt on predestination, if you want to get more into the doctrine of election, because that, that will affect the way that you view um, the perseverance of the saints. Uh, yeah, so the confidence that we have in believers, as believers, is that those who are in Christ are kept in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, who, um, and I don't have this scripture up here for you, but who is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession of the praise of his glory. That's Ephesians 1.14. Like the Holy Spirit is the down payment. He, he seals us. He's the down payment until we redeem the possession of our inheritance, right? And so the Holy Spirit is the, is the, the, the marker of God that we uh, are guaranteed an inheritance and that the Holy Spirit will uh, preserve us to the end until we take possession of that inheritance. So in other words, those who are saved are also sealed. Those who are called are also kept, right? And so we have the assurance that it's the power of God alone who made us alive in Christ. And it's the power of God alone who keeps us alive in Christ. Like it's not as though, um, it's not as though God looked at us in our dead in sin enemy of God state by the power like, like by his own power made us alive in Christ and then said, all right, go, go and, and stay alive all by yourself. It's not like he it, resuscitated isn't even the right thing. Like he, he, he raised us from the dead and then he didn't say, all right, go get a job and go find a way to feed yourself. Like he has given us both the means of regeneration and the, the empowerment for perseverance in the faith that he has enacted in us. And so <clears throat> when we hear of perseverance, uh, sometimes the temptation can be is when we think of perseverance of the saints, it can, it can sometimes be thought of as being incredibly effort driven. Like, Oh man, like I feel the weight of needing to persevere in my faith. And so now I have to do all of these things. And it's like, yes and no, like don't overestimate the, your own power. Like you have been given the Holy Spirit in persevering. Um, <clears throat> just a few verses uh, to kind of, the, it hits on perseverance and probably election as well in some, in some ways. Uh, John six thirty seven through 40, everyone, everyone the father gives me, will come to me. All right. And so if, if you really want to get into that's that, that's what Calvinists would point to as irresistible grace. Okay. So everyone, the father gives me will come to me, not might come to me, will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out for I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. So like, like people are always want to know, like, what is the will of God? And it's like big giant flashing arrow right here. This is the will of God for the life of Jesus. Okay. That I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. The will of God for what Jesus came to do was that he would effectively save everyone that God has chosen 
and that Jesus would not lose any of those that the Father had given him. And so verse 40, for this is the will of my Father. If, if you didn't get it the first time, here it is a second time, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We go, we go to John 10, just four chapters later, and here's Jesus again saying, my sheep hear my voice. So my sheep, those who, uh, those who the Father has given me, those who I have called, those who uh, hear my voice, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. I, I think uh, there was a beautiful quote in uh, Herman Bovink's The Wonderful Works of God, um, where he says, uh, if the whole matter depended upon themselves, not a single believer would persevere to the end. Charles Spurgeon uh, said it kind of this way. He said, if you could lose your salvation, you would lose your salvation. Like if the whole matter depended upon upon the individual, not a single individual would persevere to the end. Like if it all rested on our shoulders in the matter of perseverance. But the reality is, is that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who's a seal of our inheritance and who enacts perseverance within us as we live through the power of Christ in us. And so as we talked about last week, um, I, I, I'm really hitting that hard because I, uh, because these things are so intertwined and, and have to stay together. And so what we talked about last week was that sanctification is active and not passive. So in the same way, as we're talking about perseverance in the faith, it is uh, we cannot persevere apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. Yet at the same time, that doesn't mean that we are totally passive in the process of perseverance. Okay. And so, um, admonitions in scripture to persevere aren't meant to point us toward the ability of the believer to persevere. Admonitions in scripture to persevere are always meant to serve as signposts to uh, the guarantee that we can do the things we're being called to do because it is Christ who lives within us and perseveres through us. And so there's a both and to this where as we read the New Testament and we see all like all these imperative commands and all these admonishments to perseverance, uh, we shouldn't go it, again. It shouldn't produce in us a bootstrapping faith, but what it should produce in us is a dependent faith where we go, wow, I'm uh, how would I say it? The very fact that I would be called to this proves Christ's ability to affect this in my life. Like everything we're called to in scripture is actually something that now because of Christ in us, we can do. Like apart from Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have no hope of being able to say no to sin and yes to God. And so the very fact that we would be called to walk in accordance with the will of God points us towards Christ's sufficiency to affect that faithful action in us. And so we should see imperative commands in scripture as giant signposts of, of the effectiveness of the gospel and Christ in us and actually produce within us a joy and excitement and desire for obedience because it is Christ who even produces that desire in us. And so God, I'll say this way, God empowers the desires for persevering faith and the deeds that accompany persevering faith. 
And so this is this this was the whole all of the Old Testament was pointing toward the reality of the new covenant in this. And so this is Ezekiel 36. Here, here's what it says. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will take out your flesh. I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. This is in Ezekiel. Okay. This is in the old Testament. This is pointing forward to the great reality of the new covenant that now in Christ, we no longer stand under the law, but now the law of God has been written in our hearts and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my ordinances. Uh, one of the ways that uh, John Piper explains this, um, he, he says it this way. He says, the reason the new covenant is better than the old covenant is that the new covenant contains a pledge from God, not only to give blessing to those who obey, but also to cause the obedience. God does not make our salvation sure by separating it from obedience, but by guaranteeing our obedience. So when we read the Bible and we see the imperative commands in scripture, we can have the hope that God has written a new law on our hearts and that the spirit of God will cause us to desire to walk in the ways of God and will empower us to be able to do it. Not, not, not pointing to our own ability and glory, but to his ability and glory to, to walk in faithful obedience through us. And so he who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Like as we talk about perseverance, this is all under the banner of who will be glorified. Those who will be glorified are those who persevere. And those who persevere are those who are preserved in walking in faithful obedience to the end by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we have that confidence. This isn't a, like I said, this isn't a pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Now do all this on your own. This is, this is no, God has by his spirit written his law in our hearts and will cause us to walk in his statutes. And, and it's not a cause like we're begrudgingly being forced to do something we don't want to do because God has changed our hearts to, to both desire the direction and to have the deeds that take us in the direction that he wants to go. So that answers the question, who will be glorified? All right. Now to the question of what is glorification? So if, if those who persevere in the faith will be glorified, um, what is the thing that those who persevere have to look forward to? And so a short definition here of glorification from Millard Erickson is glorification is the point at which the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of last things overlap for it looks beyond this life to the world to come. So um, a, a short point of, point of clarification here. If you, I'm guessing you didn't, because this isn't where the, the reading for this week went, but if you came to this last session in Foundations of Our Faith, um, hoping that we'll get into things like, uh, like the tribulation, like the rapture, like the millennium, different views on that, all that stuff like, this isn't, that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, glorification, that, those are other parts of eschatology. Glorification is a subset of eschatology. Um, 
the, this doctrine of last things is multidimensional. And so uh, there's individual eschatology and communal eschatology. Individual eschatology is, is uh, it refers to when believers die and the spirit and their spiritual nature is perfected. Communal eschatology is when the bodies of all believers are resurrected at the second coming of Christ. And so if you want to get more into the weeds of like, what are the different views on, on, uh, on last things on eschatology, um, go to the, the equipping podcast. I know I'm plugging this a lot, but we hit a lot of these topics in some other classes. Um, week seven in the story of God, uh, Jordan and I lay out the different uh, views um, of eschatology as we're talking about apocalyptic literature in scripture. And so there's different viewpoints. Um, and mainly what we're talking about is, is the, the communal dimension of eschatology. So so we're talking about the church here, not necessarily individuals, um, though the church is made up of individuals. But I only say all that to kind of to kind of let you know, like if you walk away from these class sessions going, man, that was a lot. It's like, yeah, it was. And to be honest, it was like a fraction of a percentage of a summary of where you could go. Like if you really wanted to chase these rabbits down all of their various trails. And so the, the great thing is, is we have a lifetime um, as short as it is. We have a lifetime to dive into these things and we'll have an eternity to, uh, to continue to learn and see the greatness of God in all of these things that we're seeing. So Lest you feel like you're drinking from a fire hose, don't despair. We have an eternity to continue to drink from the fire hose of the glory of God. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, week seven, if you really want to get into those things. But um, another, another quick thing as we're talking about the glorification of believers is that um, when we hear the word saved, you need to keep in the back of your mind that there are various meanings of the word saved or salvation in scripture. And so uh, sometimes what we can do when we read the Bible is whenever we see the word saved, we immediately think atoning work of Jesus Christ, imputed righteousness. And we insert that definition into whatever scripture we're reading. Well, the reality is, is that there are a variety of ways to be saved. And here's what I mean. Like saved means rescued. And so you can be rescued from a physical situation. You can be rescued from a from a, from a spiritual situation. You can be, uh, you can, you could have been rescued in the past. We can look forward to being rescued in the future. And so there's different dimensions of, there's different definitions of the word salvation in scripture. And so what I want, what I want you to do is when you immediately see the word saved, don't automatically insert, oh, that only ever means the atoning work of Jesus Christ. What salvation is this referring to? Is this a physical salvation, a spiritual salvation, a past salvation, a present salvation or future salvation that that will change the way you interpret actually a lot of scripture. And so what we're talking about here is the salvation that we have yet to experience and is coming in glorification. This doesn't mean that that Christ's atonement hasn't been applied to us. What this means is that there is still a rescuing to happen toward the people of God that hasn't yet happened. And again, this goes back to our three P's, penalty of sin, power of sin, 
presence of sin. We have not been yet been rescued from the presence of sin, both as individuals and in our world today. And this is the, the hope that we have to look forward to, is that we will one day be saved from the presence of sin. And so that, that's all preamble to a few things as we talk about what happens when God glorifies a believer. So what happens in glorification? Glorification is where the doctrine of salvation and last things overlap. What happens when God glorifies a believer? This is the individual aspect of it. So what happens is, is he grants them the privilege of seeing and savoring his infinite beauty and becoming as much like him as a created being can become. So when we are glorified one day, we will then be given the privilege of seeing and savoring the beauty of God, not through a mirror, not through a veil, but uh, face to face, um, as much as in becoming like him, as much as a created being can. And the reason why that last part is really important is because when we're glorified, we don't become little gods. Okay, this isn't like, oh, we become exactly like God. It's like, no, we become as, as much like God as a created being can. There, we don't become little gods. Like, that would be idolatry. That would be heretical to say we become little gods because there is one God, and that's God himself. That's Yahweh. And so, but we will become as much like him as a created being can. And that's where we see in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly. So for them, when we think mirrors, we're like, wow, that was a mirror dim. Are the lights off? It's like, no, they, they polished pieces of metal as much as they could. And that, were, that was their mirrors. So it wasn't this like perfect reflection that we get right now, you know, but the, so this is what they're hearing. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even, I have, even as I have been fully known. Then I shall know fully. We will, we will see and know God as fully as a created being can when our bodies are glorified. And this is where First uh, John 3 comes in. Dear friends, we are not God's children. Sorry, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. What happens when a believer, when, what happens when we will be glorified is that we will have the privilege of seeing God as he is. The second thing that happens then, in light of that, is that we will, we will be given resurrected bodies. And so this is 1 Corinthians uh, 15. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? Or O death, where is your victory? Where, O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the that in the Lord your neighbor, your labor is not in vain. And so the hope that we have, like our bodies as they are now, are perishable and corruptible. And what God will do when when believers are glorified bodily, now this is getting a little bit more into the communal eschatology side, but there will come a day when the dead in Christ shall be raised and our bodies will be transformed to it to be in such a state that we can be in the presence of God. Because as it stands right now, our fleshly bodies can't stand in the presence of God and not be totally demolished. And so th- this is why uh, this is why God hides hides people in the face of rocks when they ask to see His presence, because He knows that they can't even they can't even stand to barely even see the backside of Him. Right? Our bodies, our physical bodies, will be changed to be in a state where we can behold the glory of God forever. And so this means that there's that we have that we look forward to a day where there'll be no more sin, no more sickness, no more glasses, no more goodbyes, no more cancer, no more chemotherapy, no more miscarriages, no more hospice, health insurance, fatigue, funerals. Like it's because of this future hope. Like there will come a day when all of the brokenness in this world will be undone. I, I love the way uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones says it in the Jesus, Storybook, the Jesus Storybook Bible. She says, when all of the sad things become untrue. This is the thing that we have to look forward to in glorification, that our, that our spirit will be able to view God as he is and our bodies will be able to stand in the presence of God as well. And so this is what Paul's pointing to in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For our momentary and light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. What does that mean? That means that all of the afflictions that we feel in this life, all of the sadness that we experience, all of the pain, all of the death, all of the sourness of the fallen state of this world is simply to accentuate the sweetness of heaven. It's like, um, I, I love the way uh, Drew Stevenson put this, um, uh, because I've, I've experienced this too, where, um, so Judah, our four-year-old, he gets so emotionally pulled into movies. Okay. If you got little kids, maybe, maybe you've like, this happens for you too, but it's like, we have to continue to reassure him that it's just pretend because he thinks everything is so real. Like he feels everything so deeply, you know, that like, the tense moments he's like gripping onto his water cup and like, like the sad moments, like he's the four year old boy. He's got like little like crocodile tears. Like he feels every bit of emotion and tension in these movies. But you know what happens 
when he feels those things so deeply is that it makes the resolution that much more gratifying for him. Like when the hero comes, when everything is put back together, when the tension is resolved, Judah is the one who's jumping up out of his chair rejoicing because he has felt the depths of the tension and the brokenness in the movie. So he's felt the depths of the brokenness, which has caused him to then be the, be the one who rejoices uh, the greatest when that tension is resolved. That's what Paul is talking about here, that our light and momentary afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory. That every time from the smallest to the biggest uh, trial that you experience, from stubbing your toe in the middle of the night to losing a child, everything that happens in this life is preparing us to see heaven as that much sweeter. The sourness we taste in this life is to accentuate the sweetness of heaven. And so just, just a big asterisk here, because um, I think it's worth mentioning, the greatest anticipation of our glorification is not that we will have new resurrected bodies. Sometimes, um, I, I, don't, I don't know if this happens a lot, but sometimes, uh, especially especially if you're more prone to uh, to like body image, um, to having a negative view of your own body, uh, I just want to kind of warn you against uh, letting the anticipation of glorification be purely placed on receiving a new physical body. Like the greatest thing that happens in our glorification isn't that we're we're given like body 2.0 it's not that we'll have washboard abs right it's not that you won't have that like fat hanging from your arms like that's not the greatest anticipation that we have in glorification the greatest anticipation that we have in glorification is that we'll be able to live with god and behold his beauty forever like that is the greatest thing now our bodies will be will be remade in such a way that that only that only enables that to happen and so don't let your great anticipation of glorification be like, oh man, I'll be really glad that this back pain's gone. It's like, yeah, it will be gone, but that's actually not the greatest part of heaven. The greatest part of heaven isn't the alleviation of aches and pains. The greatest part of heaven is enjoying the presence of God forever. Like God is the whole point of heaven. Like if, if God weren't, heaven would cease to be heaven if God weren't there. And so sometimes we can have this view as we look forward to the future of that, um, of that heaven is kind of this celestial resort. Like, oh man, I can't, I can't wait to go on vacation in heaven forever because it's going to have jet skis, it's going to have dolphins, I'm going to have a killer house. I'm going to be able to, like, we think of all the benefits of heaven when the greatest benefit of heaven is the presence of God himself because he is so infinitely beautiful. It will take an eternity to enjoy God uh, in his fullness. That's how great God is, is that we need an infinite number of days to spend with him to begin to see how great he is. And this was the original purpose of humanity, right? Like to bring it full circle, the whole point of glorification isn't, isn't so that your body will be killer. It's so that we'll, we'll, we will dwell with God once again. This was the original purpose of humanity, physically dwelling with God and enjoying the fullness of fellowship with him. And then sin entered and broke that ability for humanity to dwell with God. 
And this was the whole reason then for the tabernacle. And so you fast forward to Exodus 25, where God has, where God has saved his chosen people from Egypt good luck not seeing the gospel in this. Okay. Like where he has saved his chosen people from Egypt and he brings them out of Egypt. He gives them commands. Like I have saved you. Now here is how you ought to live. He doesn't give them the commands before he brings them out of Egypt. Right. It's not as though they earned their salvation. He saved them. Now he gives them ways to live. And then he says in Exodus 25, eight, they are to make a sanctuary for me. Why? So that I may dwell among them. This is like an intermediate state of God on his way to making all things new, saying, my whole desire is to dwell with my creation, that I would dwell with my people, that they would dwell with me in my presence, and that we would enjoy fellowship with one another together forever. Go, go another four chapters later in Exodus. He says, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. And they will know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. Why did God save his chosen people so that I might dwell among them? This, is this, this, this was the original state of humanity, Adam and Eve in the garden, dwelling with their creator. This is why God saved his people. Fast forward to John 1.14. This is the word became flesh and he did what? He dwelt among us. That word dwelt literally is tabernacled, right? So the tabernacle in the Old Testament was to be the dwelling, the dwelling of God among his people. Then Jesus Christ, God incarnate, came in the flesh to dwell among his people once again, to make it so that we could dwell with him forever. Fast forward then to Revelation 21, 3 through 4. This is what is yet to come. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Does that not sound like Exodus 29? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. The whole point, human history begins with God dwelling with his people, and it will end with God dwelling with his people. This is the whole scope of human history. This is what Jesus Christ came to do, was to bring the dwelling of God to people and to bring people to the presence of God. And so the most glorious part of heaven, because of this, the most glorious part of heaven is not your new killer body. The most glorious part of heaven is the presence of God. If God weren't there, heaven would cease to be heaven. And so we can anticipate this, this reality with full assurance because, again, Romans 8, 30, those he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There is no break in the chain. If you have been justified, you have the, the solid assurance that you will one day be glorified. And so as we wrap up this whole class, okay, as we, as we end with this anticipation and this assurance that we will one day be glorified, um, that if you've been justified, you have the solid assurance and promise of God that you'll be glorified, that there'll be a day 
when all those who have been called by God, all those who have been preserved by God, that you will be glorified with God in Christ. And there'll be a day when we behold his beauty, not, not through a mirror dimly, but face to face. And what we will experience in, in that moment, in those in those days, it's an infinite number of days. What we're going to experience, the thing we have to look forward to, is is the is living the reality of amazing grace. Have you ever have you ever noticed that line in Amazing Grace it says, "When we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing His praise than when we first begun." When we've been there 10,000 years, what's, what's infinity minus 10,000? It's still infinity. You, we, do, we don't lose any amount of time. When we die, we will have just as much time left to praise and behold God as the very first person who died, uh, the very first believer who died has had. So if, if believers have been in heaven 2,000 years before us, we don't have any less time to praise God. They didn't get a head start on us because we'll be there an infinite number of days. We have no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. This is the hope of believers. This honestly, and, and Jordan's going to hit this in the message this morning, is that living with a supernatural orientation like our anticipation of glorification ought to affect the way that we live today because it puts everything in perspective, doesn't it? It makes everything else temporal. It makes everything else uh, not, not inconsequential. Like there are important things that happen in this life, but what it does is it puts it in perspective to go, if I live 80 years, there, that, is, that is incomparable to the eternity that I will dwell with Christ. That 80 years of suffering, 80 years of sickness, 80 years of ailments, 80 years of struggling is nothing compared to the eternity that we will have in Christ. And so this isn't to minimize the suffering, the pain, the things that we're experiencing now, but it is to accentuate the greatness of what's to come and to put that in perspective and cause us to endure and persevere in Christ. And so that this was probably the most worshipful um, lesson, I think, to prepare. Uh, if, if it didn't benefit anyone else, it at least benefited me because it, it, it had that perspective uh, shaping impact on, on thinking about um, what is to come. I think it was, uh, oh man, I think I have this wrong. I think it was Martin Luther who said, "Go to uh, if I had to choose between going to a wedding or going to a funeral, I'd go to as many funerals as I can because he constantly wanted to be reminded that death was imminent. But it wasn't because he wanted to be this like depressed person. It was because he wanted to continue to live in the anticipation, not of death, but of what came after death. And so as we walk uh, forward in, in, for the rest of our lives, honestly, would we have a supernatural orientation with the way that we view our lives, the way that we prioritize the things of this life in light of the eternity that we have the joyous hope of anticipating in Christ. And so um, if there's any questions uh, on that, I know that was a lot, but uh, I'd love to, to think through any questions you have. Um, there's any out there. I just, I listened to a podcast where 
a gal was saying that with our new bodies, there will also be a new earth and it will be like a return to the Garden of Eden. I don't know much about eschatology, so I didn't know. That sounds awesome and makes sense. Is, it, is that biblical that it will be a new earth, like a return to Eden? Yeah, so it kind of depends on who you talk to. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, th- there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Uh, it, God is going to renew his creation. And so I don't think that, um, uh, how do I say it? It's kind of the question, it's a version of the question, will I recognize my relatives? Like, does, does getting a new body mean that it is, it is so new that it's unrecognizable? And I don't think that's the case. I, I do think that, that, no, I think our bodies are going to be changed um, in their nature but not necessarily in their kind. Like, I think we're still going to probably look fairly close to the same that we do apart from the, the effects of sin so that we can stand in the presence of God in the same way. I go, because I think that about our bodies, I probably have to think that about our earth too, where it's like the earth will be renewed. Um, and so it won't look totally unlike what it is right now, but it will be different. Uh, the vision we get in Revelation is is kind of a return to the garden state, um, which uh, I, I can't remember if I sent that that paper out. I think it was the, the the temple city of God, where it's like, yeah, we we will I think return to to a state of the garden, if not um, in in physical appearance, uh, for sure in what I call it in spiritual reality. The, the reality of the Garden of Eden was God's people walking with God in, in close physical uh, communion. And so whether, whether it looks exactly like the Garden of Eden or if it's, or if it's spiritually analogous to that, uh, we will one day dwell with God again um, in a new creation. So I don't know if that kind of like answers your question a little bit. Andy Crouch uh, in his book, Culture Making, would go so far to say that um, not only will uh, the, the earth won't be totally destroyed, it will be renewed. He also goes so far to say, like, I think he's just wondering it. Like, I think like human, how do you say it? Like human achievements and cultural artifacts will also be preserved. Essentially what he's suggesting is like, um, like iPods and Mini Coopers might be in heaven as well. And I go, ah, I don't know, Andy. Like, I think that might be a stretch. Like, <laughs> I'm not sure. No, who has an iPod now? You know, like that seems so uh, culturally dependent, but <laughs> Tom does. That's helpful. Thank you. I haven't charged my iPod in several years. The kids use it as a phone now. <laughs> I guess I have a question as usual. Yeah, no, I love it, Serena. <laughs> I mean, you brought up the concept of funerals um, or, you know, what takes place at funerals. And it's just always amazing to me to hear a message at a funeral because of all the, you know, the different people who are there to, to hear it. And before I was saved, I lost my dad and my sister. And I looked at death in such a different way. Mm. than I do now and so how does how does a church how do you um you know tackle that at Candeo when there is a funeral 
like like with the different audiences who are there and kind of what to say yeah because so many people think they're going to go to heaven and play baseball and do their favorite things and they mm -hmm. just think it's this like glorious version of themselves here on earth but and they don't think you're going to be there to praise god and it's just such a disconnect mm -hmm. it's very hard and so much weeping and sorrow when you're thinking well there is a reason for that if the person didn't know christ but mm -hmm. yeah that funerals are some of the hardest things to do um they're not as hard if the person was a believer clearly you know um i've done funerals for people who weren't believers and then their families are there who aren't believers. And that's, that's like the weirdest thing. Cause it is that like, what do you say? So in that moment, what I try to do, I, uh, I don't assure them that they're in a better place. Cause I can't say that. Um, no, no one, I don't want to give someone that false hope because that, that will affect the, the way that that, that the still living understand salvation. Um, but what I try to do is I, I try to go, this is why death exists. It's because of the presence of sin. Now, what I'm not saying is that this person died because of a particular sin. What I'm saying is that we all die because sin exists. Brokenness in our world exists. That's usually where I go is I try to, I, I use the, the funeral as a springboard to go, things aren't supposed to be this way. There's, and this is why there's brokenness in our world. And this is why we feel the weight of this brokenness right now. And I, I almost, I almost disconnected from saying like, and that's why this person's in hell, you know, kind of like, I don't go there. So I'm like, I don't think that's the appropriate thing. That'll, that'll just like shut them down. But I use it to go like the very fact that death exists shows a broken world. And here's what God says to a broken world there's grace like and, and i go into the gospel highlighting the brokenness that that the very presence of the funeral kind of gets to um yeah i usually don't get into like uh um people's views on heaven necessarily on like trying to correct those at funerals at least um i do as much as i can in like discipleship context try to uh, try to continue to accentuate that God is the most glorious part of heaven. And so uh, joy in God and anticipation of being with God uh, ought to be for the believer, the greatest thing we look forward to. Um, so if we spend all of eternity singing praises to God, that wouldn't seem like a buzzkill to the things I was hoping to do in heaven kind of thing. Um, I usually don't get into that at funerals though. Uh, I just try to highlight the brokenness there for, for believers. Um, it's kind of the same thing. Honestly, it's just, it's just got, got more of a, um, a little bit of a twist, but it's honestly not a lot. Cause what, what I don't want to do either at funerals, even if it's a believer is to minimize the validity of the, of the pain. Um, that death is an offense to the life that Christ has intended for his people. And so um, to feel the offensiveness of death uh, to who God is and what God wants for his people um, is an appropriate thing. And so, uh, so I don't want to 
I don't want to try to minimize somebody's grieving by saying, Oh, don't worry about it though. You're going to see them again. It's like, no, I think, I think it's appropriate to grieve and, uh, and to grieve for a while, like to be in that place where, where we feel the weight of the brokenness of our creation. Um, now it's, it's, it's not, it's not a, a grief without hope, but there is still a grief. And so, um, I usually try to help believers know like it's okay to grieve. Like even though we have the hope, like grieve with hope. Like it doesn't say don't just it doesn't say just have hope. It's like we don't grieve as those without hope. Like grieve as someone with hope, which still means that we grieve. Um that's usually the encouragement I give to believers in those in those contexts though. Jake, I have a question. Yeah. Or it's kind of related to what we've been talking about, having funerals. You have an opinion or on cremation? That's a that's a great I mean, question. I know if you're burning a fiery crash or at war or your house burns, you're gonna go to heaven if you're cremated. But as far as being, I don't know, air quotes proper or not before yeah. God. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so this is this is just an opinion. Uh, I don't have like a scripture and verse for it. Um, I hold two things, uh, not intention, but side by side. So one is um, from dust we came and to dust we will return. And so whether my body becomes dust in an urn or whether it becomes dust in a $4,000 casket, it's going to be dust. Uh, whether I expedite that process or not, like God is going to resurrect um, the dust and bones that have been in the grave that have been in the grave for the last couple thousand years. So, uh, so I, I have that reality. I'm like, okay, so God is not unable to resurrect to God is not unable to resurrect a cremated body. Like, cause the reality is we will all <laughs> turn to dust. Right. Um, right. On the other hand, though, I do go, I think there's something to uh, to the hope of a physical bodily resurrection that for me, I go, I think a funeral of burying the body can, if, if you have a view to this, can be a way of both honoring the body with a with an anticipation that that body will one day be raised and so it's a bit of a symbolic act i would say because that body will eventually turn into dust if it's in there long enough and so i go if someone chooses to like go the cremation route i don't have i don't get mad about that i don't go i don't go man you're you're not honoring them or that or how could they be resurrected if you burn them or whatever just for me personally, I go, I think there's probably something to the act of like burying a physical body in the ground, in the ground with the anticipation that that body will one day be raised. But I, I've, I've had people like, um, recently had a friend who, uh, whose mom passed away. She's a believer and they, they cremated her body. And then, and then this friend came to me, it was almost like she, she thought of the question after the fact, like two days after the fact, it was like, Oh my gosh, did we do something wrong? I was like, Hey, <laughs> no, you didn't, you didn't do anything wrong. Like she was still in a grieving process. I'm like, I'm like, no, you're fine. She will be raised on the last day. And whether she's in a casket or in an urn or whatever, like 
God created the universe, he, he will be able to assemble the ashes and, and resurrect her physical body. So um, that, that's kind of where I land on it. It's kind of a non-landing. I know it's kind of like weaseling my way out of it, you know, but, <laughs> but I, I don't get super dogmatic about to cremate or not cremate. Um, I know some people do, but I generally don't. 